Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Strength Connection Podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Kurkowski. Thanks so much for joining me today. All right, in this episode, I am with Dr. Mike T. Nelson, professor at the Carrick Institute and Rocky Mountain University, and he's been a research fanatic in the world of metabolic flexibility, heart rate variability, and human performance. So Dr. Mike, he's been a leader in the fitness world for over 20 years, and in this talk, got to dive deep into both nutritional flexibility and physiologic flexibility, two certifications that he's created. So with that, we'll get right to it. If you like this episode, you want to show the podcast some love, please rate and review it wherever you're listening. And don't forget to subscribe. You can catch all new episodes that are dropped every single week. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Now let's get on with the show. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. Well, welcome back. If you've listened before, if you're first time listening, thank you. I'm glad you found us. And Dr. Mike Nelson, how are you? It's so good to see you, man. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, it's great to it's great to connect. As I uh, said offline, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, going back all the way to the RKC days, over oh, yeah. a decade or so Thank back you. there. <laughs> yeah, so it's great to see you, and uh, re- I'm really excited to uh, to chat with you. So appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah. So if you guys don't know, Dr. Mike has been around for a long time in uh, the world of the Flex Diet podcast that he runs, Um, really gets into the details of that term optimal performance, like we're all, you know, into. And I think it's it's so interesting, you know, Dr. Mike, because it's uh, kind of finding the right ways to, to get into the details of stuff, you know, of like what that term kind of, you know, optimal physiology, kind of flexible dieting. I think it's a lot of these terms that we know what they are, but there's a lot of misconceptions behind it. And you do a beautiful job of really cutting through the bullshit and getting into the deep details of, no, this is the real science behind it. So we're going to dive into quite a few different topics here, but to kick this off, just I'm always curious about the origin story of how you got into this world of it. So what intrigued you about kind of health and fitness, the strength and conditioning world, which eventually led you into coaching? Yeah, as far as I can remember, I was always interested in physiology and also probably engineering at the same time. I used to take stuff apart to my parents' house and never get it back together just because I was fascinated by like how everything works. Mm-hmm. And as a teenager, I spent, oh God, tons of hours doing, I had a big 10 scale uh, radio controlled car what I used to race. And so I would spend hours just doing my own modifications to it and putting different suspension arms on it. And because mm-hmm. for me, it was like a fun <clears throat> experiment where you could do it and then you could take it out to the racetrack and you'd race against other people and see, did it, did it work? Did it not work? Was it a good idea? Was it a bad idea? And I did my undergrad at St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota. The original plan was to do a bachelor of arts in natural science and then go to Michigan tech and do a bachelor of science in uh, mechanical engineering. And so I started there and <clears throat> started lifting around the same time. So that was a six foot three eel shaped rake, like about 156 pounds. And this is mm-hmm. after puberty, <laughs> after all your growth spurts, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I should probably learn about lifting at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I realized like, oh, you can do the same thing. You can apply knowledge and you can test it out on yourself and see if you're doing something that's correct or not. Mm-hmm. And I remember taking uh, anatomy and physiology class as an undergrad, which is interesting because they actually had new cadavers they got in every quarter, which is pretty rare as a undergrad college. Anyone could sign up and take anatomy and physiology. It wasn't just pre-nursing or pre-physical you know, physical therapy right. or anything like that. And that was fascinating because I'm like, oh, you get to see on the inside and you get to see what everything looks like. And the guy who taught it was <clears throat> really, really good. It was at a private Catholic college. And we could never figure out, we're like, God, why is this guy like long, scraggly, red hair? It could be just 100 degrees out and he's got these long like Harley Davidson shirts on. And we realized later, this is like the early 90s, that he had, you know, full sleeves on both sides, which was very much frowned upon in, in that environment. Right. But he was great because he was very good at explaining everything. And so I'm like, oh, that's fun. And then when I got to Michigan Tech, I realized that... I could do two years of the uh, basically mechanical engineering work, and then I could apply to graduate school because I had a a Bachelor of Arts already. Mm -hmm. So I did that, and then I did two and a half years there doing my master's in, I was supposed to be in mechanical engineering. That was all my classes, biomechanics. Ended up doing um, 
basically heat transfer project of zapping monkeys with a large microwave transmitter. <laughs> okay. Which was later declassified <laughs> by the military as a, mm-hmm. a ray gun. And they would uh, zap people with it. It turns out if you take a millimeter, like your microwave in your kitchen, uh-huh. so it's about 2450 megahertz. And that's enough for the, <clears throat> the beam to penetrate the food, to excite the water molecules, to heat it up. This was a gigahertz range. So what it meant was it would mm-hmm. penetrate about a millimeter into your skin, and that was it. But a lot of your sympathetic nerve endings are, you know, you touch your skin, it's very, very sensitive to light right. touch. So it would light those up, and it would feel like your skin is being burnt by a light bulb. So the military wanted it for, uh, initially it was a non-lethal crowd dispersion technique. So you could huh. point it at a group of people, it feels like they're getting burnt, everybody moves out of the way gotcha. of the beam. Um, which is interesting. You talked about our buddy, Adam Glass. Uh, he, I was telling him this story years ago and he's like, oh yeah, I had that tested on me once. I was like, really? <laughs> like, oh yeah. I said, how did it feel? He's like, horrible. But he's like, the second you were out of the beam, he's mm-hmm. like, it, it completely went away. Really? Um, yeah. And, and years ago, I did a, a presentation for DARPA. So the Defense Advanced Research Projects mm-hmm. Agency, which was on metabolic flexibility for soldiers. And when the contractor guys over lunch, I was just, you know, telling him, he's asking me like, Hey, what'd you do? And I was telling him about my master's stuff. And he's like, he's like, Oh yeah, I was the operator of one of those. I was like, what? No way. He's like, yeah, I was in the military, I was in Iraq and they're testing it out. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how do you, I said, the military doesn't use it much anymore. And he goes, yeah, they're not really good with trying to figure out non-lethal means per se. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so crazy. And I so- said, well, how did, how did you use it? He's like, well, we just ran a few experiments. We were testing it. And so we would use it for non-lethal crowd dispersion. You mm-hmm. pointed at a crowd of people if you needed to get guys through. And I said, well, what do you do if someone doesn't get out of the way of the beam? Like they're, they're still coming at you. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, we take them out because they're clearly a threat then. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> he's like, if anyone's staying in that beam for more than a few seconds, he's like, they're going to do some harm to you. So we, we, we eliminate them. <laughs> wow. Oh, the, and I'm thinking, the, Oh my God, like all this stuff. I thought I was just trying to get through graduate school. I didn't know all this shit was going to happen. So that's crazy. Yeah. The, deep, the deep details of military exploration on these. Right. Things. That's and crazy. The funny part is my advisor at the time, you know, didn't even tell me it was classified. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, your project was so classified. We didn't tell you it was classified. So I didn't learn any of this till five years after I finished. There's a little, ad in the bottom of a paper that says Mm -hmm. military declassifies ray gun my advisor sends me an email with the clipping he's like oh yeah this is your research project like oh okay that's wow interesting that's crazy i always wondered what brooks air force base in texas cared about they told me it was on collision avoidance systems on cars i always found that was a little bit fishy (laughs) Eh, whatever um yeah but even at that time i just took more exercise physiology classes for fun Mm -hmm. um i remember the, they had a new exercise physiology department at St. Uh, not when I graduated St. Scholastic was at Michigan Tech. And I just asked the guy, I said, Hey man, I'm maxed out on credits. Um, can I just take your class? And he's like, there's a 400 level exercise physiology class. You just want to take the class. Why? You're not going to get credit for it. I'm like, no, cause it's cool. I think it's fun. Yeah. And he's like, well, I can't technically sign you into the class, but since you're not using it for credit and you're already paying the maximum amount anyway, if you happen to show up at 10 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm not going to kick you out of the class. I was like, oh, right. perfect. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so were, you just, just, were you just interested in just the material of it? Or yeah, was it I just wanted to learn the think- material. Because yeah. up until that point, I, I never took an exercise physiology class. I took physiology, mm-hmm. I took chemistry, minor in chemistry, minor in math, all that stuff. Um, and I was like, oh, this is fascinating. Um, so when I graduated... I started working for a medical device company and that was good. I liked it, but I also realized eh, working in a cube environment wasn't super fun. And I was writing, you know, free training programs for, for buddies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it was around 2005, I did my NSCA CSCS, which yep. I passed, which was great. Um, don't do what I did and oversleep the exam and not study for it and just walk in and lead your way into the exam after they close the door. I had to wait for the proctor to go to the bathroom. I'm like, can I take the exam? She's like, you're 45 minutes late. I'm like, I know I overslept. <laughs> and I'm like, just, just let me take it. Like, I don't want any extra time. I don't yep. want any, you, you know, anything to change. And she's like, I can let you in. And if you pass, you pass, but I can't give you any more time. I'm like, that's fine. That's fine. So 
Um, yeah, so just started training people, worked at gyms for a little while. The last gym I was at filed bankruptcy. I decided just to put, you know, equipment in my garage, um, did that mm-hmm. for quite a while. And then probably about eight years ago, I transitioned to uh, training people online. Mm-hmm. Um, after about two years after I got done with, with college, I went back and started doing uh, PhD work in biomedical engineering. Because mm-hmm. at the time I figured, well, this is a faster way, you know, to get a, a, a PhD because I wanted to do more advanced stuff. Sure. And I got to work on, you know, some cool projects. But getting funding was just a monster pain in the butt. So that didn't pan out. So after five years of doing that full time, I dropped out with only two classes left to finish. I hadn't started research. Went over to the exercise physiology department and started there, started working on heart rate variability and metabolic flexibility because I was the only mm-hmm. one there who understood anything about math. <laughs> okay. Because they're looking at um, basically variability differences in those. Mm-hmm. And that took me seven years. And so right now I teach for uh, Rocky Mountain University. Mm-hmm. I teach biomechanics for Walsh University. I'm associate professor at the Kerrig Institute uh, for clinical neurology. Mm-hmm. I have my own business training clients. And then I also work part-time uh, for the guys at Rapid Health. So Andy Gelpin, Dan Garner, mm-hmm. and the guys yep. from Barbell Shrug. Uh, so help them do some assessments and yeah, have the certifications also. That's awesome. Yeah. And I know you have the certifications and also speaking in many different engagements around mm-hmm. the world. That term metabolic flexibility, I'd love you to kind of dive into that a bit. I think, like I said, it's one of those terms that we hear and it's like, oh yeah, metabolic flexibility, but nobody really knows what it means. Like what does, uh, by definition, like what is metabolic flexibility? Yeah. So that was kind of the crux of my research. So I started, oh God, like 13 years ago now. And in the, the fitness world, it's it's so weird and tribal, I guess, kind of like the rest of the world. It's like, oh, carbohydrates. No, they're bad. They're going to kill you. You have to be, you know, keto 365 days a year. And then people are like, oh, no, but carbohydrates aren't that bad. And, you know, high fat is bad. And so everybody has to pick one side or the other. And the reality is your body, you want to use both fuels. So metabolic flexibility is how well can you use carbohydrates on one end of the spectrum? How well can you transition to use fat as fuel on the other end of the spectrum? Mm -hmm. Then how fast can you transition back and forth between those two? So it's using the right fuel at the right time. It's not saying you have to be all carbohydrates or all fat. It, you want to actually, there's advantages and disadvantages to both of them. So how do you use both for the correct thing? It's like, if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's like maybe right. you need another tool to play with. <laughs> huh. Okay. Right. Well, that kind of gets into the the flexible dieting where I'm sure that's a big part of the flexible dieting cert that you do is the metabolic uh, flexibility. When you created this, uh, Dr. Mike, was it, was it just something you were inherently really interested in that you wanted to dive in? Or did you see like more, there's a huge void in the health and fitness world that people don't understand like how to go about nutritional programs. So I want to work on this more. Kind of both. I mean, like I said, when I transferred to the physiology department, I didn't have a choice of projects per se. Mm -hmm. I had left the PhD program in biomedical engineering because I, at the time I was an idiot and signed up and went, oh, I don't even think there's anything beyond Calc 4 for math. So when I did my Mm -hmm. master's in engineering, I realized, oh yeah, there is. And you got to take three more advanced math classes. I should have realized that if you're going to do a PhD in biomedical, that you have to know more advanced math beyond that. Mm. And that was just, just crushing me. And I'm like, I'm sitting all my free time going to fitness conferences and all this stuff anyway. So this isn't directly applicable, but it's kind of the sunk cost fallacy where you spend five years of your life doing something, you get close to being done. You don't want to start over. When I transferred to physiology, literally the first day, my advisor walks in, we had our staff meeting. He's like, all right, we got two new projects. One's on heart rate variability and one's on metabolic flexibility. And they both involve math. And you can see the look of horror on like everyone's face. <laughs> even an exercise phys, unless you're doing, you know, maybe some motor stuff or certain subsects, you, sure. you just don't take a lot of math. So he looks around at me and he points at me and he goes, hey, you, new math boy. I don't even remember your name. Like, these are your <laughs> projects. And so I'm like, oh, shit. I come all the way over here because I don't want to do math anymore. And I get projects assigned with math. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turned out that, I mean, the first conversation I had with, with him about metabolic flexibility, explained the concepts I had never heard of it. And I'm like, but isn't that just how your body works? Like what, what, well, how is this even a topic of research? Mm-hmm. And then you start reading the stuff and you realize, oh, 
like when you become unhealthy, like you become metabolically inflexible. And there are changes you can make to carbohydrate metabolism, changes you can make to fat metabolism. And so I started playing around with those concepts with clients. And I realized I'm like, oh, so this is kind of sort of the answer to a better path forward. And from a mm. marketing standpoint, I can market myself as only one concept, right? Because I realized mm. very quickly that you're either in the high carb camp, you're in the keto camp, the fat right. camp, the protein is bad camp. Like you had to pick some area just if nothing else for messaging to get through the noise. Right. So I could label stuff as metabolic flexibility and I could talk about lactate. I could talk about carbohydrates. I could talk mm -hmm. about fat. I could actually talk about what's actually going on with physiology right? and not feeling like I had to bias myself just into one direction or not. Right. It gave you an invitation into every room in there so you could talk yeah. to anybody. Yeah. And then I started figuring out, okay, what if people have issues with carbohydrate metabolism? What are things that help them? They have issues with fat metabolism. What are things that help them? And so then I used that in a bunch of clients I got to play with uh, just to figure out how do the concepts actually work in practice then. Hmm. So when you said like when people are unhealthy, like they're metabolically inflexible from there, mm -hmm. like what does that mean? Like, does it mean that they just use one fuel cell, like a fuel source to kind of fuel their body and not the other? Or is it kind of, it's even, is it more complicated than that? Mm, that's generally true. <laughs> so you can think of the fuel sources as on like a dimmer switch, right? So if I've got a, a dimmer, I I used to DJ at a radio station. I did a death metal show, which is pretty fun. But everyone's seen the DJ, right? Where you've got a record on one side and a record on the other side. So imagine the right record is carbohydrates. The left record is fat. And you can change via dial, like how much percentage you want of the one on the right versus the one on the left. You can transition back and forth uh, between the two. So they're all in the body kind of on this dimmer switch. They're not really on or off per se. So you would find people who became metabolically inflexible, like say uh, type two diabetics, mm -hmm. right? So most people think of type two diabetes, they go, oh yeah, it's a carbohydrate metabolism problem, which initially it does start off that way. If you have a harder time using carbohydrates, your body tries to solve the problem by putting out more and more insulin. So you can think of insulin as a fuel selector switch, which I stole from Jeff Volek. So high levels of insulin, like after you eat two Pop-Tarts for a meal, hormonally will push you to use carbohydrates, right? Because your body's like, hey, we just had a whole bunch of carbohydrates that come in. We should probably use those fuels that are present now. Mm. When insulin is low, like after a period of fasting or low carbohydrate intake, that actually pushes your body to use more fat <clears throat> as a fuel. Mm. So what happens in like a type 2 diabetic, which is a grand oversimplification, but the tissue becomes less sensitive to glucose, starts having issues. The body says, hey, We've got blood glucose. We don't want this blood glucose to elevate it. It has to stay very tightly controlled. It does elevate as the disease progresses. But the immediate solution is just get blood glucose out of the bloodstream. Just shove it in tissue, muscle, fat, liver. Don't care. Just get it the hell out of the bloodstream. So one of the ways it does that is by pushing up your basal levels of insulin. Insulin will then drive it into other tissues. Mm. But over time, you need more and more and more insulin. So if you look at type 2 diabetics and you just pull a simple insulin measurement on them or 24-hour analysis would be C-peptide, you'll see their baseline level of insulin is going up and up and up over several months to several years. Mm. So what happens, and because of that, the body is now being sort of blocked from transitioning to use fat because normally you need lower levels of insulin to use fat. So you've got a carbohydrate metabolism issue on this end, and then you've got a fat metabolism issue on the other end, and you're getting constricted and scrunched from both sides of the spectrum. Mm. And at the end, eventually blood glucose, you know, goes awry and all, all sort of stuff goes offline. But initially the body is trying to do the best it can in the face of the events happening. And it's those sort of acute adaptations that lead to chronic changes over time. Mm -hmm. And so someone who has type two diabetes, who has progressed into the disease quite a while, actually does have an issue using carbohydrates and they actually also have an issue using fat. They're metabolically mm. inflexible. Oof. Okay. How is that? Like, how do you work on that? Like what are the metrics to kind of follow to, to kind of change it? Cause I'm assuming these things can change over time. Like what are the ways that you can like change that to go from inflexible to becoming more flexible? 
Yeah, so usually I'll pick one end of the spectrum to work on or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do both, but so example on the carbohydrate end, a lot of people would say, oh, we'll just put them on a low carb diet. And there might be some benefits to that in some people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think about how well is their body using carbohydrates, right? What is the main thing that's going to use carbohydrates, the brain, and obviously muscle. The thing we have the most control over is muscle, both from potentially adding some muscle, like with hypertrophy training, right. or just simple movement. <clears throat> so when you move, your body, the contracting muscle itself will actually pull glucose directly out of the bloodstream, uh, a lot of times independent of insulin. So there's two main mechanisms there. There's an insulin dependent and an insulin independent. So the insulin dependent is what you've normally heard in exercise phys, translocation of the GLUT4 receptors, blah, blah, blah. But just walking, even any time of the day, just contracting muscle can actually pull glucose out of the bloodstream. Hmm. So the biggest thing is just some movement. If you can do higher intensity exercise, that's probably going to be better, but just walking, moving, doing those types of things. Sleep will impact both of them. There's some very cool studies out of uh, Chicago where they took normal, healthy college people, and I believe they sleep deprived them for four hours a night for five nights, and they basically created type two diabetic people. (laughs) Really? Oh my God. Yeah, by just dramatically cutting their sleep in half for several nights in a row. Now, when they got sleep again, they went back to being normal again, right? So it was a temporary right, okay. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some other studies where they've taken people and locked them up in a metabolic chamber, and they've just had them hit this little button to wake them up once an hour. <clears throat> they didn't even have to get out of bed. They didn't have to do anything. They just had to hit this buzzer, turn it off. So they fractured their sleep by doing it once every hour. And in the group, they use the same subjects. Another night, just sleep eight hours all the way through. When you fractured their sleep, how well they used uh, body fat dropped by like 50%. So if you stress someone, especially during sleep, you're kind of pushing them away from using fat as their metabolism. Um, The other part, if you want to use more fat, then you probably want a lower insulin condition. Mm -hmm. Um, So some periods of fasting can be uh, helpful with that. Uh, Lower (coughs) carbohydrate periods. Sometimes lower carbohydrate diets can Mm -hmm. be helpful with that also. Um, You get into the debate of should you do fasted cardio or not, which is a whole subsect. Um, But I generally think of it as movement on one side, sleep helps both, and then periods of fasting. And when you're Mm -hmm. fasting, you're also usually in a caloric deficit, right? So calories still, you know, and all these things, calories still matter, of course. Right. Yeah. So with coaches who are like, who kind of go through your cert and they're working with people on this, maybe they don't have specific, like I'm assuming like blood work's probably like the best way to really know what's going on in somebody's body. But if they don't have access to that, like, are there certain other metrics that like you think people need to use in order to know whether they're really changing up their physiology? Yeah. I mean, I think blood work's probably the best and the flex diet cert. I don't teach blood work per se because it's, it's kind of out of reach of most people. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do your own blood glucose. So if people are wondering, just buy a glucometer at a store, poke your finger every morning at about the same time when you get up, just run that for seven days, right? If your mm-hmm. blood glucose is elevated, in my opinion, if you start getting above 90, mid 90s in US units, probably something to look at with that. Mm-hmm. Um, in practicality, <clears throat> I do what I call the Pop-Tart test. <laughs> so for carbohydrate metabolism, for breakfast one day, can you have two Pop-Tarts and then see how you feel? If you want to okay. take a insulin-induced nap under your table for two hours afterwards, yeah, I'd be willing to bet you probably have some issue with carbohydrates. Gotcha. Um, again, does that mean people need to eat Pop-Tarts for breakfast? No, but they literally have almost the same amount of car- grams of carbohydrates as an oral glucose tolerance test. You can get them at any grocery store. Mm-hmm. They're virtually indestructible. The ceramic coating you know, doesn't even melt in your toaster. So if you're looking for something that's like probably going to survive an apocalypse in terms of food, that's about as far right on the spectrum as you can get. Right. right? Um, so, so if you we do well with is, that. You heard it here. Dr. Mike recommends you eat Pop-Tarts in the morning, everybody. So. Yeah, I still get lots <laughs> of hate mail for that. <laughs> um, but if you can, to me, like my argument is you're probably okay in relation to, to glucose because you're doing it first thing in the morning. There's nothing else in your digestive tract. You haven't exercised. Um, yeah, if your sleep's a mess, it's probably not going to help it. And mm-hmm. then on the use of fat, 
can you do a longer period of fasting, ideally 19 to 24 hours? Yes, you're going to be hungry, but you should feel relatively okay. Like you shouldn't feel like a crumpled mess and you're going to gnaw your arm off because you're, you're so hungry, right? right? So if you can do a longer fasting period, then I would say you're probably pretty good for fat metabolism. Mm-hmm. Again, these are, you know, if you said, hey, I want a field test of something somebody can do anywhere with no technology, nothing else. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what I would use. Yeah. You mentioned before with the fasting and also fasted cardio. I know that's always been something that people have gone back and forth of the benefits or not or so. Like, have you seen, is there like more of a benefit to doing it? Is it really not that big that it's kind of more by feel versus person? Like, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it. So in fitness, whenever you mention fasted cardio, people assume that you're doing it for body composition reasons, hmm. right? So for body composition reasons, maybe, right? I can point to some studies that showed a higher use of fat. Um, the only real study that's been done on it that compared it was the one study Brad Schoenfeld did that everyone brings up, which is a good study, but it was done in females. It was four weeks. It was relatively short. Mm-hmm. They didn't use metabolic hearts, so we don't know what fuels they were actually using, um, but in that study, didn't really show for body composition any significant differences between a group that did fasted cardio versus the same group that did mm. cardio, but they were in a fed state. Right. So if it has an effect, I would say it's probably more on the minor side, but I think in practice, it's actually easier and it's something that I actually do recommend. There's some older data looking at fasted cardio versus non-fasted cardio in terms of health metrics and the use of fat as a fuel. So fasted cardio does appear to be a little bit better for that. There's some data looking at it in relation to upregulation of insulin sensitivity, like glute floor translocation and other mechanistic stuff. Fasted cardio does appear to be better for that. Mm -hmm. And to me, the other part is, if you're doing low to moderate intensity cardio, you don't really need a lot of carbohydrates to do it. And fasted cardio is actually just easier. So what I found in practice was, like, hey, get up in the morning, you know, get on a bike and uh, yeah, just, you know, do a half hour, maybe an hour if you really want to get after it. If you're doing zone two cardio, which is mm-hmm. all the rage now. Right. Um, the questions you normally get then is like, oh, well, what do I do for a warm up? Like it's so low intensity, you don't really need a warm up. Right. Oh, well, what do we eat beforehand? No, don't eat anything. If you want to drink some water, great. Just just get on the bike and go. <clears throat> so you're you're taking that period of time before they do it, they don't have to do anything else to get ready for it. Mm-hmm. Right? And I found if you can just make it more simple, the odds of people getting it done are higher. Even just right. go for a walk in the morning fasted. Granted, that's very low intensity. It's probably not even really exercise. Yeah. But if you need to warm up for your walk, like you've got some other issues you need to sort out ahead of no time. No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. So, so I but- just find that it's easier in practice. And from mm-hmm. a fuel standpoint, I actually want to hedge my bets to using more fat as a fuel. Right. Now you get into debates of there's some data showing that that may not really change a lot, depending on how much food you've had before. My buddy, uh, Dr. Uh, Jeff Rothschild is doing some work on that. Mm -hmm. So there's a debate on, do you absolutely need to do fasted cardio? If you really want to accelerate fat burning, how long do you have to be fasted? Um, I've done some stuff here with my metabolic heart. And one of my clients, Ryan Baxter, just did this experiment the other day with his metabolic heart. And he had a result by doing a 15-ish hour fast versus like, I think it was around a 10-hour fast in terms mm-hmm. of using fat. But again, these are super far down in, in the weeds of people who are trying to 100% maximize everything. Right. So fat cardio is beneficial. <clears throat> is it a magical thing that's going to rip fat off you in a record time? No. But nothing really does other than some scary drugs you probably don't want to do. Um, right. But I do think it's beneficial both from practice and maybe on the scientific side, which can be debatable. Yeah, that's always the thing. I mean, with fast, I've had conversations with every aspect of people. I've had it with coaches, researchers, um, also just general people who are curious about intermittent fasting and stuff. And I think, I mean, if the body composition major changes, if you're doing fasting is probably it's a com- combination of you're in a calorie deficit and you're, you know, you're expending more energy than you're taking in from there. I know personally, Dr. Mike, like I started just training fasted years mm-hmm. ago, like just by more by happenstance and just necessity of needing to train early in the morning. And I just sure. did, and I didn't want to have 
a meal beforehand. So my last meal was usually around six o'clock the evening before. And I was working out somewhere between six and eight o'clock the next you know morning. So, you know, 12 hours or so. And like body composition wise, everything had always felt good, but mentally, like I always felt just more cognizant. Like I always felt just more engaged in just the practice of it. So I don't know if there's any uh, physiological real benefits on the strength training side with fasting, but it does seem like mentally it's easier to get kind of into what you're doing when you're in a fasted state. Yeah. I would say in practice, I have clients that do both, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, from a physiology standpoint, if you're doing it, like you're doing it, there's going to be no loss of muscle glycogen, right? Muscle glycogen, even if you did a 24, 48 hour fast, isn't really going anywhere unless you did a lot of muscular work, you know? And so unless you're, you know, did too much ambient and you're running around your house in the middle of the night and you don't remember it, right? You're not doing a lot of muscular work sleeping. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason glycogen is going to be super low and it's not, your fuel isn't going to be a rate limiter. Some people I find just perform better fasted. Like it's usually mentally they feel better. And that kind of makes a little bit of sense, right? If you've had a big heavy meal, you're going to divert blood flow into your gut in order for digestion. Um, most people don't do good lifting after a huge meal. Some people do better with a moderate size meal. Some people do better fasted. You know, I think it's just kind of finding whatever works works best for you. Right. So it really always comes down to what the kind of individual aspect of it, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you could, you know, if you said, hey, I want to do everything to 100% maximize muscle gain. Yeah, maybe consume some whey protein or collagen for sure. soft tissue and muscle beforehand or during might be beneficial. But, you know, I can't really point to a, a study that's done that versus not doing it. That's a theoretical benefit. Right. Okay. So kind of going into like the physiologic flexibility that you have, and I know there's like the, the four different intervention points and I want to get into that, but mm-hmm. kind of between both like the nutrition flexibility and also like the physiologic like, do you think like people should focus on one first versus the other, or is it better to, do you think like, if you can like work on both of them at the same time, that's really going to be the most beneficial? Yeah. So how I set it up was the, the flex diet sir covers mainly nutrition and recovery. There is a module on walking and eat and the module on exercise, but it's mostly on the nutrition recovery side. And I said, that's kind of like your level one. So when I ask people, I'm like, Hey, if you're pretty good with exercise and nutrition, like 80 ish percent. Yeah. You're, you're probably start with level two, which would be the physiologic flexibility. Okay. So what I did is took the same concepts as metabolic flexibility, right? You've got fats and carbohydrates, uh, two fuels that you can switch back and forth. And then I was wondering, I'm like, Oh, so what if you extend that concept to you as an entire physiologic organism? Mm-hmm. What are some things for advanced work, what is the framework that you should model stuff around, right? Because if you go into, you know, recovery, trying to be more anti-fragile, resilient, mm-hmm. it's, you know, take this supplement, like, you know, put cold water on your face, you know, stick this red light up your ass, you know, right. what, <laughs> it's like whatever it is, right? It's just this random, and even people who have really good stuff in the field, it's, it's in one area. It's like, oh, breath work is a key to doing all of it. Right, yeah, I like yeah. breath work. I think it's awesome, but what what physiologic effects are you trying to do or cold water or sauna or no just do high intensity no just do low intensity my pet peeve is that it's confusing for people because there's no talk about the framework of where do you put these things in like how do they fit into your physiology with your goals so with the physiologic flexibility what i came up with is these things called uh homeostatic regulators so humans are homeotherms. We like, you know, 98.6 body temperature, like to about 97.7. But we have to regulate that temperature very, very tightly, just like we have to regulate blood glucose very tightly. The body core temperature gets any too high or any too low, like you're dead. But we have adaptation mechanisms. You can go in a sauna for a period of time. You can go into cold water. Mm-hmm. You can go into temperature extremes. And we know that those are actually trainable. Right? We've got a whole wealth of science on heat yep. acclimation. There's some better science coming up now on, on cold acclimation. Mm-hmm. So we know that you can adapt within that range. And if we look at like pH, <clears throat> like your pH has to stay within a very tight range. 
talked about blood glucose or fuels. And the last one is oxygen and carbon dioxide. So those four main areas are kind of your four main homeostatic regulators. Your body is going to do everything possible in order to keep those in the correct range. However, I think you can become more resilient and more robust if you train in those areas to handle wider extremes without stressing the crap out of your physiology. Hmm. Right. So if we look at heat acclimation, we know for athletes, yeah, two to three weeks is probably about a good time to be heat acclimated. And everyone's had this experience, right? I've done this multiple times in the past and I traveled a lot more. I would go down and do some talks at uh, Dr. Ben House's place in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. It would be March. I've been down in there in June. I've been down there in December. And the March one was the worst because it was cold in Minnesota. And you get there and it's warm and it's humid and yeah. exercise is horribly hard yeah. because I'm just not acclimated to it. Mm-hmm. Right. So then I got wise and I would start doing some sauna and some heat exposure before I got there and it wasn't nearly as bad. Mm-hmm. So those areas we can train in. So the physiologic flexibility is set up to how would you train on, say, the top side and the bottom side? So temperature, you've got heat and then cold. pH, you've got low pH, high pH. And how do you train in each one of those areas to expand out your capacity? And it's my belief that the greater your buffer zone in each one of those areas, right? Assuming your sleep is okay, your nutrition and exercise are not a dumpster fire, that that's the key to advanced recovery, longevity, and being more uh, robust, anti-fragile. Right. It, it it seems like these these things are so important, but I like what you said there of like everybody kind of is picking one of those things and saying, this is the best thing and this is the best thing. And right. it seems like it, it can get so confusing of, well, what do I do? Like, do I do cold water or do I do heat or do I do both? Right. Or do I do, just should I just focus on nutrition? And then all of a sudden, like, most of us, I know even as a coach, it can get very confusing of saying what's the best. So you go back to your essentials. All right, well, just get your resistance training in and eat right. And that's going to do a lot. But these things are, are super, you know, beneficial to get into. So like, what are the best, like, I know you just came from this, uh, like a sauna village, I believe, Yeah. you know, with your team. What was it? Was it? Okay. Yeah. What What are different saunas? Like, which ones did you experience in that? It was cool. So my friend Krista runs a points retreat here and some other people, they set up, uh, it's like the great Northern festival. I don't know if it's in conjunction with the Minnesota winter carnival or not, but they have all sorts of like different events. So I was on a panel on her podcast, uh, rebel and be well with my friend, uh, Thaddeus Owen from primal hacker. Nice. We were just talking about cold exposure, sauna, you know, temperature differences, and while we we're there, they had different sauna manufacturers came out and they set up their own saunas. So from one guy who was just custom building saunas to spec in, in his house to another guy who they built up to, I think they just did a 24 person sauna for some festival or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was like an old school barrel sauna that they did yeah. some Japanese charring to the outside to seal it. And yeah, so we got to wander around and try these different saunas, portable saunas, like wood fired mm-hmm. saunas and yeah, it was super fun. That's awesome. So how hot did it get? I know some can get like over oh. like 200 degrees or so. If we went into one, we didn't stay very long. Uh, it was 195. We're like, oh, oh that was, that was yeah. a little much. I, I will admit at this point, I'm, I'm not very uh, heat tolerant. I only do it about once a week. <laughs> okay, because I, I heard like the crazy story. I think it's like Laird Hamilton, the pro surfer who like yeah. crank, he's cranks his sauna up to like 220 and like rides a bike in there and he like puts oven mitts on because his yeah, hands, he burned his like, hands the first time he put it in there my god and i was like that's it seems ext- i mean he's an extreme guy i mean he's a big he's, wave surfer he's an incredible you know shape yeah. and a different yeah. you've type seen of his tolerance. videos right he's not yeah. a normal human <laughs> <laughs> yeah no doubt and i was like this seems like it's a little on the extreme side but again it's like you know you don't know so with kind of the with the cold and heat just to dive into that a little bit like what are some things that you found like just beneficial, like is cold shower even like as good as if like you did a cold plunge? I know not everybody can jump into a cold plunge and do that every day. Like is cold shower even, is that a good benefit that people can jump into? I think there's some benefit to it in terms of studies. There's just not many studies on it because it's hard to control it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's the main reason. But if you said, Hey, my option is turn my shower to cold for 30 seconds at the end of my shower every day or not do it, 
I'd be like, yeah, do it. I think there's a benefit. I think most of the benefit is more on the psychology side of choosing to do something hard. Right. Um, I, so right before COVID started, luckily I had a freezer I bought. So I bought a 15.6 foot cubic inch chest freezer. Not that I would recommend this, but you can potentially seal it with silicone, uh, stick a pond pump filter and an ozone in there and create your own cold water immersion. Obviously don't go in it, make sure it's unplugged, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'll put a little temp sensor in there that'll control how often the freezer turns on mm-hmm. and off uh, just by setting the temperature. And so I started doing that, you know, luckily I had everything set up. So when COVID happened, wasn't traveling, wasn't teaching, wasn't going anywhere. I figured, well, this is a perfect time to do more of an aerobic base every morning, do my normal training. And I'll just start playing around with the cold water immersion every day because it's mm-hmm. a great experiment. I don't have any other stressors really. And what I realized after about two and a half years of doing that, I actually still do it here. I did it yesterday and stuck my face in there this morning. I thought it would get really easy. Like I thought, okay, but after two and a half years of doing this, you know, five days a week, you know, but it wasn't, there's always still that has even yesterday when I got in, like right before you get in, there's this thought of, shit, this is going to suck. It's going to (laughs) suck. Right. There's, and you find like, oh, I should listen to a different song. Like you find yourself, you know, easily getting just distracted to, uh, yep. to do it. So I think there's still that, you know, Andrew Huberman calls it limbic friction, which I like that term. Yep. There's because the reptilian hardwired part of your brain is saying, you know, if we stay in here a real long time, we could die. And yeah, that's actually true. Now, granted, you do have to be in there for a really long time yeah. and it have to be really cold or some other extraneous circumstance, but the newer, you know, prefrontal cortex professory part of your brain mm-hmm. And say, well, no, it's going to be safe. We've done this, you know, my case, hundreds of times before. It's a controlled environment. It's easy to get out, et cetera, et cetera. So you kind of talk your way into it. Mm. And I do think that what I found was there is some interesting physiology that happens. But I found on the psychology side was probably the biggest thing that I didn't expect. Right. I think that in reality, my life is so easy and comfortable that I kind of have to choose to do hard things. Yeah. You know, I think your physiology is going to benefit from it. And what I liked about the cold water is as long as you're reasonable, you can overdo it hundred percent. It's something hard that you choose to do every day that doesn't take a lot of time mm-hmm. and you're still actively making that decision, which I do think probably transfers to other things. So when you're at the airport, taking the stairs to your suitcase as opposed to the elevator, right? Parking farther away, you know, at the mall, whatever. Like all these other little things that I think those decisions become a little bit easier or only mm-hmm. eating one donut instead of 10, right. you know? Right. I think it does transfer in most people and it's something you get to practice like every day also. Yeah, it is. The The cold is that one thing that I've seen that that voluntary suffering, I think the psychology and I know there's the physiological benefits of it in there, but it seems like the psychology greatly outweighs it, especially at the beginning of like, yes, because you do like I, I still I do the cold shower every morning. Oh, nice. Every morning. It's like, do I want to do this? Like, no, I yeah. really don't want to do it. It's like you get in, it's like, all right, just step in. And some days it feels a little better. Like this morning, I don't know if it was an extra cold, uh, you know, sprout that was coming out, but I'm like, this fucking sucks. And it's like, but you get through it and you do it. And then it's like, okay, like I accomplished that for the day. And it is, I think a lot of these things, there's such good benefits to it on the, on the science front for your body but the psychological benefits of just of voluntarily stepping into doing something challenging, it's, it's, it must be hard to really weigh that into like, into like an experiment or like actually like research, but I don't think you can, you can really overstate that. Yeah. There's some interesting studies. And one of them to, I don't want to say the researcher's name, so I may get the name wrong, but um, she looked at the, thoughts about stress related to people, I think going through Navy SEAL selection. I don't remember what part of it, if it was BUDS or what it was, but, and they found some interesting data that the people who tended to pass, granted it, it's not hundred percent by any stretch of the imagination, were people with the belief that stress will make them better. Like people who had a lesser mm-hmm. chance of not making it through thought, you know, stress is just kind of a negative thing and you just kind of got to figure out a way to get through it. Right. Mm-hmm. Which goes back to 
was it Carol Dweck stuff of like growth mindset, right, right. all that kind of stuff. So I do think yeah. there is something also to the psychology and how you view stressors in your life. Yeah. You know, so one thing I try to teach in, especially the Fizz Flex course is you have to pick some stressors in your life because if we remove all of them, like your physiology just goes to shit. Like if we park mm. your ass on a couch for 10 years, like nothing good is going to come out of that, right? We chuck you into outer space and you don't do any counteraction and we remove the stimulus of gravity, man, you lose bone loss like yeah. crazy in months. Like your baroreceptors reset, muscle just gets stripped off you. So your body's like, screw it. Hey, we're not doing anything. We're going to need gravity here. All right. So I think you have to pick what stressors you want to expose yourself to. And if you do that in an intelligent manner, your body rewards you by getting better at those things via adaptation. Yeah. That's why, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Mike, it's something I've talked about quite a bit with my own personal clients of like connecting that physical and that mental practice both together. You know, like Mm -hmm. this is, I've had some kind of debates with people about meditative practice. Cause I think meditation, there's a lot of great benefits to it. I mean, the definitely says that, but also if you just, if you're closing your eyes and envisioning overcoming all these obstacles in your life while you're in a 70 degree room, like super comfortable listening to soft music, it's like you're in a really comfy environment when you're thinking about overcoming all this stuff. No, if you actually move that into you know, doing a, you know, cold exposure or a challenging kettlebell workout or whatever it is, connecting both of those together. I think um, John Donaher, the jujitsu coach talks Mm -hmm. about this so perfectly with his athletes of like, yeah, connect both of them together. And then it's going to really stick a lot more for you. Yeah. And the the third, I call it a a stress lesson, L-E-S-S-E-N. So it's kind of a double meaning where what lessons can you learn from stressing your physiology, mm-hmm. right? Because we've all been around people who will say may not choose to apply a lot of stressors to them. And if a stressful environment happens, if I were to pick people to be on my team, yeah, they kind of go to the bottom of the list. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you're unpredictable. I don't know what's going to happen, right? I would much rather pick someone who has chosen to stress themselves and to be able to control their response. So they have practice, they have reps at doing it. Again, doesn't 100% mean it's going to transfer over, but odds are it probably will. So when you get in the cold, how fast can you control your breathing? Uh, When you're doing high intensity stuff on the rower, I think there's a time and a place to go, you know, balls out, breathe in and out of your mouth as hard as you can. Like your goal is absolute performance. Great. Uh, But like what Brian McKenzie, Rob Wilson have talked about, how high can you go just nasal breathing, right? Knowing mm-hmm. that you can open your mouth at any point and it's going to suck less, right? But I think there's a benefit to doing that at a moderate to high intensity and pushing that. Mm. And so the stress lesson is what do you learn from doing those? Cause you'll find your mind wants to go in all sorts of crazy places. And then you're literally lessening the stress response, right? I think if you can control your physiology, you can just simply look at heart rate. Right. If we measure heart rate in someone, we drop into 40 degree cold water and they just can't get control of their breathing. They can't do anything. Their heart rate is just going to stay elevated longer Right. versus someone who maybe the same person. Maybe we teach them some breath work. We get them to kind of use their breath to get control of their autonomic system. Now their heart rate is going to come back down faster. It's literally the same person, even the same exposure, but we're giving them a tactic, a technique, a tool so that we're lessening that internal stress. The mm. external stress is still the same. The water is still the same temp, et cetera. Um, but I think there's a lot to be learned from those and doing those things on purpose. Right. It is. It's interesting. You know, we, uh, me and my former partner, we did a challenge of kind of just the nose breathing work mm-hmm. of like, he did it like, you know, drink a, you know, water, keep it in your mouth and start and doing snatches. Oh yeah. yeah. Seeing if you can go like 20 minutes. It's amazing by just doing the nose breathing and knowing like you can, you can breathe out of your mouth at any time. But after talking to guys like Patrick McGowan of oxygen advantage and like such deep stuff of just nose breathing, how quickly like your heart rate starts to elevate almost like in a, like a fight or flight response when you're not used to that. But, oh, the ad- but the adaptation like comes very quickly afterwards and you realize how much more stress you can handle just from that little adaptation. 
Yeah. And what I do this formally is you you can do that. I use the rower a lot. So for a lot of CrossFit people I Hmm. work with or worked more with them in the past, one of my tests would be, okay, go row a 5k only breathing in and out of your nose. And then let me know what your performance was and what your max heart rate is. Right. Cause for a lot of them, you know, by the time they find me, they're like burnt out, you know, stress cookies, like they don't know what to do. Their aerobic base has been destroyed. They just, you know, two Metcons a day and that'll fix it. And then they plateau. Right. Um, one guy was 116 was his max heart rate he could hit, you know, and it took him forever wow. to finish it. But the cool part was, with just eight weeks of training, like he repeated it again, he could easily hit the mid one fifties. It took effort. Like he had to concentrate on it, mm-hmm. uh, but he could do that for several minutes. Right. And his output was way higher. And when we measured his HRV, then two days after the next day and the next day after, his stress response was almost the same, even though he shaved several minutes of time off and was working at a higher heart rate. Now, granted, part of that is the adaptation because of the aerobic base that he built up too. Um, but, you know, I kind of use those metrics. You can pick anything you want just to show what is the performance, how hard was it, and then what is the actual stress the next day? So what is the cost on your physiology by looking at the heart rate variability? Wow, that's fascinating. So, um, Dr. Mike, this has been a blast having you on. I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, thank and, you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to have you back anytime. I feel like we were just getting into some some awesome stuff. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So you've got a bunch of speaking stuff going on and stuff like where are you where are you speaking next? You have some conferences that are coming up, right? Yeah, I have some stuff coming up. I will be doing a talk on heart rate variability at the Neurosports Conference uh, down in Florida coming up mid-month, so mid-February. I'll be attending the Raise the Bar Conference in uh, Dallas, Texas. And then, let's see, there's one more. Is that the one? Um, and then I'll also be presenting at the Real Coaches Conference or Summit in Vegas, March 6th and 7th. And then... Well, if that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. And then I'll be probably headed back down to South Padre, Texas in March, be down there in uh, April for that month, and then probably back in Minnesota in May. And awesome. then in June, I'll be presenting and doing a talk at the International Society of Sports Nutrition in Florida. So mid-June. Nice. Good. And then you've got the Flex Diet Certification as well as the Physiological physiologic Flexibility Certification too. If people are interested, they don't know where to find you, where can they go and check those out? Yeah, best place for the Flex Diet is just flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. For the physiologic flexibility would just be physiologicflexibility.com. And for any other stuff I do, just go to miketnelson.com. And I think Instagram is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I think awesome. pretty sure awesome. <laughs> I should know <laughs> beautiful. No, I, I do that all the time with Instagram too. Cause mine's a weird handle. Um, Dr. Mike, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Listeners go follow Dr. Mike. If you don't do so already, I'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you found some great value here. And if you like this episode, please drop a comment and leave us a five-star rating and review. It does more to build the show than you can imagine. And do not forget to check out and join the Strength Connection Facebook group. In this group, I share the biggest takeaways and lessons from these amazing conversations, as well as training and strength tips for pursuing mastery and fulfillment in life. This group is filled with individuals looking to take full control over their strength, and it's the perfect space to explore new ideas and to share your journey. And you'll also get exclusive access to the Strength Connection Mastery Seminars. It's a deep dive into the physical, mental, and spiritual training that you can begin using immediately. So do not wait. Go now. Seriously, go. I much love to you. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you on the next one.